G'day, Dominic Butterfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We, we don't ask for anything in return, um, well, not at the moment at least. Though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or, or uh, iTunes or even Acast, uh, where we're, we're now on, and uh, leave us a review. So obviously a five-star review would be great, um, and uh, and we'll probably try and uh, read out some reviews in the in the next couple of podcasts that we do. So if you could spend your time and, and do that, that would be fantastic. So today we're joined again uh, by Professor Jill Mad- Thank you very much, Jill, for, for coming back in and having a chat. Thank you, Dom. And uh, and I thought what we could uh, talk about is this uh, like canine uh, pancreatic specific lipase, um, and I suppose more specifically where you think um, it should be used or is is, is clinically useful, um, and maybe where where you know and, and how you use it in practice. Okay, that's a fairly open question. Yeah. Um, is it okay if we also talk about feline as well? Yeah, or are we absolutely. just going to be doggist? No, we can we can we don't have to be speciesist as, okay. uh, at all. All right. Okay. So I think as you know, the pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity test um, has been around for a few years now and was launched and is a you know, addition to our sort of uh, range of tests that we've got in the diagnosis of pancreatitis and I think as we all recognize as well pancreatitis in dogs and cats is different um, and we've got more likely to have acute pancreatitis in dogs although chronic pancreatitis has been recognized whereas in cats we're more likely to have chronic pancreatitis so they're they're actually two very different species when it comes to the clinical presentation of pancreatitis but if we talk about the role of the test I think it's important to recognise that when new tests are launched, it's entirely understandable that sometimes there's a greater expectation of what they can and can't do than perhaps turns out to be the reality in practice. And I think when they were launched, it was believed that these tests might be able to be the test for pancreatitis and therefore um, allow us to be much more definitive about our diagnosis of pancreatitis. And if we just look at the dog, um, the issue with the dog is that in reality, most of the dogs will present with a range of signs that that you could say is an acute abdomen. So most of these dogs, not all of them, but most of them will present and they'll present vomiting. Um, It's often related to eating. They've usually got abdominal pain. They may start off eating okay um, and that's why they're vomiting and then they later become unwell. Or they might be just really unwell right from the start. And in those animals, our key question is... There are a number of things that can cause an acute abdomen, and one of them could be pancreatitis. And I think my colleague, Carolyn Mansfield, I was having a discussion with her about this uh, a couple of months ago when we were at the Fasava Congress in the Gold Coast, and I think the point that she, that she makes is a really good one, is that when you're faced with a dog with acute abdomen and what you're chasing is a potential diagnosis of pancreatitis, that's fine. But what you need to recognise is what's really more important is that you rule out the other causes of acute abdomen because many of the other causes are, if you like, surgical and if not surgically corrected pretty soon are going to be very much to the detriment of the animal. So where does that put the test? 
So there are two types of PLI. One is called the SNAP PLI, and that's the one that we use in practice, and we, there's the two little dots, and you put the blood on, and if the two little dots um, are in equal equal colour of blue, then it's a positive test. And then we have the one that's sent off to the laboratory, uh, that's run in the laboratory. The the one that's run in the laboratory is quantitative, so you get sort of a value for it, and it can be a value that's anything from um, well, what's regarded as not consistent with pancreatitis is a value less than about 200, and what's regarded as consistent with pancreatitis is a value that's greater than about 400 micrograms per litre. I, I think that's the units, but anyway, 400 is the number. And there's a grey area in between. And I think it's really important to recognise that the consistent with pancreatitis or not consistent is the key word because the one that's done in the laboratory um, has certainly got potential for false positives and potential for false negatives. And it probably runs at about, roundabout, depends on what paper you read, round about 20%. So in other words, that probably of the animals that have a value that's greater than 400, probably in about 20% of cases, maybe a little less, um, that's going to be a false positive. That animal doesn't have pancreatitis. And in animals that have a value that's less than 200, then again, it's probably round about 20%. That will be a false negative in about 20% of dogs. So it's of interest. I'm not saying it's not of interest and it can add to the information that you have about the patient, but it's not an absolute test. When we look at the SNAP test, and this is for canine, the SNAP test tends to, well, the SNAP test goes positive once the level in the blood is greater than 200. So um, it will be positive in that grey zone where we really can't say whether or not it's consistent or not consistent with pancreatitis. So it has a higher sensitivity for pancreatitis but a lower specificity. So in the dog, probably the... Um, the probably the sensitivity is close to, it's over 90%, which means that if you do a SNAP PLI in the dog that's got acute abdominal signs that you're concerned with pancreatitis, and if it's negative, it is most likely that dog doesn't have pancreatitis, but there will be maybe about one in 10 that will. So if everything else is screaming at you that this dog has an acute abdomen and you can't find another reason for it, then pancreatitis remains a real possibility. And of course, in those animals, we're going to be doing abdominal imaging, be it radiograph, be it ultrasound. But it's really important to remember the SNAP test is useful in the majority of cases of ruling out pancreatitis, but there is the occasional one where it can still be negative. The one in the lab, Again, it's adding to the information, but it can't be absolute either way. So you can neither rule out pancreatitis with it or confirm it unless everything else is helping you do that. So I personally am most interested in the SNAP because to me, the SNAP makes me recognize it's not pancreatitis and particularly if it's a dog with acute abdomen, then I'm really going to be hunting for something that's going to be um, a potentially surgical problem. Um, yes, I might do it in the laboratory, but that can be much more expensive. And I'm really not sure sometimes, if I'm not sure about this animal, does the test help me? Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. 
Now, the cat is a nightmare because cats with pancreatitis tend to have chronic pancreatitis. It tends to be a sort of chronic grumbling situation, clinical situation. Their most common clinical sign is just kind of not doing right, being inappetent, maybe losing a bit of weight. Um, they don't necessarily vomit. They don't necessarily have abdominal pain. But on physical exam, you'll often sort of get this just this, just this faint twitch when you palpate the cranial abdomen. And the problem with pancreatitis in the cat is because it's not so clinically defined, it's, it's much harder to find the gold standard to say, yes, this animal's got pancreatitis. Because in the dog, if you've got an animal with acute abdomen and you can't find any other reason, then the most likely thing is it probably does have pancreatitis because the other things that are likely to cause that acute abdomen are going to be, usually you can find them on imaging. So whether they've got a, you know, a ruptured intestine, whether they've got peritonitis, whether they've got an intestinal obstruction, um, all of those things tend to be, you know, emerge and don't hide themselves. Whereas in the cat... All of the sort of disorders that just make an unwell cat are much, much harder necessarily to rule out or rule in. And so in the cat, we have the problem that we've got a cat that will have vague clinical signs, nothing sort of really marked. The Because it's chronic pancreatitis and therefore grumbling pancreatitis, the specificity of the test, both the SNAP and the um, the FPLI that goes off to the lab is much lower, so it probably gets down to round about 60% or less, which means that it's almost half and half whether if the test is above the reference range um, when it goes off to the lab, whether or not this really is pancreatitis or not. The like in the dog, the SNAP test is more sensitive. So again, if it's negative, it makes it more likely the cat doesn't have pancreatitis. But the other complication in the cat is that they have, as we know, triaditis. So they will have inflammatory bowel disease, they'll have cholangiohepatitis, and they have pancreatitis all as a group. And we don't know which of those is causing the major clinical signs. And we certainly don't know, as far as I'm aware, we don't have good figures about what is the... Um, uh, what's the sensitivity and specificity of, of SNAP PLI or FPLI in animals that have inflammatory bowel disease, have triaditis. So it's not to say it's not a test not to run, but it's one that you have to see it as part of the picture, not the whole picture in most cases. And so I discuss with veterinarians and they'll say well it can't be pancreatitis because the PLI the CPLI was not was normal wasn't increased and I go well that's not necessarily true um, or it must be PLI because the SNAP's positive and that's definitely not true in both the cat and the dog there's a much higher false positive rate for the SNAP test than there is for the one that goes off to the lab the CPLI or FPLI. I find it interesting that you uh, that, that's a, a great uh, synopsis um, and and uh, in, a, in a, a wonderful chunk of time. Um, but the uh, I find it interesting that you like to use the the snap test because you you want it to help you with it with acute abdomens. Because uh, I think that I would. Um, if I had one test to do, I think I'd prefer in the acute setting with the acute abdomen to take a radiograph. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I'm not. I'm. I'm definitely not saying that it supplants 
you know, and at all. So I'm not saying that. So taking a radiograph, taking a radiograph, looking for that intestinal obstruction, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, but there might be. So, for example, if I've got an animal that has got a relatively acute abdomen, um, but not an absolutely ragingly acute abdomen, and for various reasons, I'm I'm thinking that an intestinal obstruction is unlikely. So it might be that they've defecated normally that day. I might be able to hear perfectly normal gut sounds. I might be very confident with my abdominal palpation. So I'm sort of looking around and in practice where I'm going to get a quick result. Um, I might say, well, this is what I will add to everything. So, for example, I saw a little dog the other day and it was a little um, terrier. And it came in and it had a couple of vomiting episodes. It actually didn't have abdominal pain. Um, it was um, relatively relaxed, but it was but it was definitely vomiting. And it was dehydrated. The owner said it didn't think it had some dietary intolerance, but that was certainly something that we were considering. But on physical examination, I couldn't hear any gut sounds at all. The owner hadn't seen it defecate because it goes under a bush. So in that dog, my my key question was, does this dog have primary gut disease? And if it does, is it just a dietary indiscretion or is it an obstruction? Or could it have pancreatitis, although this abdomen isn't too sore? Um, and and it was quite it was quite relaxed. It wasn't in too bad a shape. We put it on fluids. It was an eight o'clock consult. All of those things, it wasn't, it was okay. I did a snap and it was negative. Thought, right, it's unlikely to be pancreatitis. This dog's kind of looking like it's a real possibility. It could be dietary indiscretion, but I'm still a bit worried about that lack of gut sounds. If it doesn't rally itself by the morning, the next step is diagnostic imaging because that wasn't presenting as acute abdomen. It turned out it had eaten three little rubber bungs from something and it did have an intestinal obstruction and they were taken out. Now, I, in retrospect, would it have been that I should have done a diagnostic imaging then? It was perhaps, although it wasn't in trouble, it really wasn't in trouble, and in that dog there was a really high possibility that it was a dietary indiscretion. So d- did it change much by knowing that it, that it, the SNAP was negative? Not a huge amount. It's just I kind of put that to the side. It kind of almost confirmed what I thought. So I think my message is it's 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 part of the package, and that whenever I'm lecturing about pancreatitis, um, it still says even with now with PLI, pancreatitis is still a diagnosis where you have to use multiple sources of data to help in your assessment and reach the conclusion. And as I said. Um, sometimes you can't confirm it. The main thing is that you've ruled out that it's not an obstruction or something that really needs some surgical help. And, and how has... Uh, obviously, things have changed because because uh, um, when you, you originally taught me, obviously, you're, you're still teaching me day to day, but when you originally taught me, we, we didn't have no. this. And, and so it's, it's more amylase and lipase and the and the old school um, fashion that, that still exists on every biochemistry, yep. which I find interesting in itself because sometimes it is still yep. markedly elevated. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so how, how, did you, how did you start to use it? Were you just sort of trying it to see... Um, whether it made made a difference to you. So how did you get to this point now where, where um, you use it? I think that, I think, you know, it's an, it, I'm a cynic. And so 
uh, whenever a new test comes in, and I can understand that there is a need for it to be promoted well, um, but I never believe an awful lot of hype. So I sort of read some papers and I looked at it and so yes, started to use it and in the cases that I see from my distance education course and that I discussed with veterinarians saw how it was being used and sort of sort of built this picture up and looked at the papers and looked at the the the, the studies that were there as more came out once it was sort of there and being used more and more and became particularly disillusioned with the papers around the sensitivity and specificity for cats because it seemed to be almost this circular argument that if it was positive they diagnosed pancreatitis and therefore used that as the standard. Um, I still maintain, and I absolutely appreciate that there are papers out there that might contradict this, but I still maintain um, that in a dog who presents with classic acute abdominal signs, um, vomiting related to eating, abdominal pain, they've got lipemic serum and they've got an amylase of 11,000, to me that dog has got pancreatitis until proved otherwise and I don't care what the PLI says. So I will say to veterinarians, are you really going to tell me that that dog doesn't have pancreatitis if the PLI is normal? Because, quite frankly, of course rule out anything else but particularly if it's got lipemic serum and it's not a schnauzer and it hasn't eaten for 24 hours you've got to go an awful long way to find another diagnosis that will explain it so yes it could have hyperadrenocorticism you know there are reasons of course of course for it being lipemic um so I would never say that um, a, a massively increased three times the level amylase or lipase 100% confirms pancreatitis because we know that it doesn't. However, when you put it in with a package, then it, you know, what they say is, you know, if it walks like a duck, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is a duck. Um, in the cat, it's impossible because they just don't present with such you know, typical clinical signs. So so I guess and because I like to I like to think critically and I don't like things, I don't like being told that a test is a definitive test that will tell me one thing or another. I like to look at the evidence. You know, I get into all sorts of trouble when I talk about bile acids for the same reason. You know, bile acids is a whole nother, again, really useful in a package, but not on its own. It can't rule in or out. Um, liver disease. Um, people tell me that ultrasound rules in or rules out liver disease. No, it doesn't. You know, there are false positives and false negatives. And it very often can't tell you what the histopathology is. So just, I just like being, I just like thinking critically about it. Absolutely. I, I suppose I hadn't really thought because in my, I suppose in my practice, I don't really use a feline uh, pancreatic specific lipase because I suppose it doesn't have such a, a market. They're not going to present to you acutely. So, you know, the, the cats with pancreatitis, I've got a, um, an RP2 student at the moment, and what she's doing is that she's looked at all of the, the, PL, the FPLI results that have been done. Um, at the college, I think, over the last... I'm not quite sure what she's up to, whether it's the last five years or ten years or whatever, but last five years or three years, I think it depends on how many cases she gets through. And what she's doing is that she's looking at the the PLI level and what the final diagnosis was and how it was reached and whether it was reached by ultrasound, whether it was reached by, by biopsy. This is in cats. And what's become immediately apparent is that it's actually really hard to find the cases that have the definitive, absolutely, this is pancreatitis when it's a cat. So there are some that have a biopsy 
which is great, but we also know that um, there's quite a high proportion of cats that will have pancreatitis, or sorry, pancreatic inflammation at biopsy at post-mortem. Do they have pancreatitis? Who knows? Um, we're looking at ultrasound. So there are some really characteristic signs of pancreatitis in an ultrasound, but just because it's not there doesn't rule it out. So just the very exercise of trying to correlate whether a positive PLI, I mean, this is for an FPLI, um, and, and what that means in relation to the final diagnosis is proving really interesting, challenging, and it's still, we haven't got the final results yet. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's, but those cats, most of them were presenting as chronic unwellness, you know, chronic unwellness. They're going to present to the medicine service, not ECC, um, and probably certainly some of them are going to have inflammatory bowel disease and cholangiohepatitis and who knows what role the pancreatitis if it exists plays in their clinical signs so it probably will have some sort of contributing factor yeah but, but yeah, a, yeah yeah an yeah. isolated entity maybe maybe not so much or significant in the dogs yeah i suppose i was struck by uh you know if you if it walks like a duck and and sounds like a duck then it probably is a duck and i suppose there's always that adage which i think you're Husband uh, once uh, once told me, "Don't get an isolate, or don't let an isolated fact get in the way of a good diagnosis." Yeah. But I suppose the other thing with that is that I, what concerns me sometimes about a, a a test for a specific disease entity, I think sometimes one of the worst things to have is is a label of a disease on a patient because mm. then you you kind of stop, stop thinking. thinking. Exactly, you stop thinking, yeah. and so and that's where I think it's dangerous because I have. 100% seen cases where the animal presents with acute abdominal signs, they have a positive PLI and the diagnosis stops and they say it's got pancreatitis and three days later it's no better and lo and behold it's got a corn cob in its intestines or, you know, often a foreign body um, and that's that. And that's why, you know, the other message is fine. You know, if your working diagnosis at this point is pancreatitis, but keep reviewing it because the reality is that in dogs at least, pancreatitis, um, uncomplicated pancreatitis, they really should start getting better. You know, they really should start looking better. If you're perfusing that pancreas, if you're giving them pain relief, if they're getting antiemetics, um, they really should be starting to look better. And if they're not looking better pretty quickly. Now, it may be a complication of the pancreatitis, but they they really need some further imaging, investigation, whatever. Yeah. I mean it, I mean it's definitely uh, a, a useful uh, a useful test and I, and, I, and I suppose conversely sometimes I would I would have thought in the in, in the in the short term, I would uh, perform some sort of radiograph, and then more where you can get a specific uh, um, result. You know, you send it off to the lab because you can find out because you know if it is or not, yeah. whether it's you know what, what the actual level is, because you're going to treat it you know supportively anyway you're yeah. not, not going to just withhold treatment or stop just yeah, because exactly. of that result anyway exactly you still have the patient in front of you exactly but, but i think it's nice to have to uh, you, you know you have to put the, the the clinical signs of what the patient is actually telling you in front of it yeah. and then and then have a plan to yeah. to reassess that's that that's and you always have to be thinking you know is there anything here that's not making sense you know does it make sense you know is this you know that's what makes medicine and ecc such fun because it you know it is um you are solving a puzzle and you are being a detective and you are constantly thinking and saying well you know does this fit does it fit 
yeah, so the test is positive, but does it really fit with what's going on in this patient? I think, I think it's a hard thing as well to to uh, when when you you know obviously you've seen so many students sort of go go through, um, but how that that idea that the um, that it's not actually that you know diagnosis mm. it's putting mm. it together and and these are the things that it could mm. be so I think we we it's always really like hard. as people to have a, a binary yes or no yep. about everything yep. and and there's a lot of grey out there. and I think the thing and the and with the liver and pancreas, both of them they are just. You know, there's just it's just not black and white. There's just so many subtleties to how the enzymes are interpreted. Um, all sorts of things are interpreted. So it's a real. That's why I love it because it's such a challenge. But um, it's like with liver enzymes, just because they're increased doesn't mean the animal's got liver disease. You know, it's yes, at a certain level you can go, yep, it's got liver disease. But at you know, so it's just. Yeah, it's just challenging, and just and bile acids and and PLIs just add to the mix. Absolutely. Um, is there anything else you think you'd like to uh, talk about with um, pancreatic specific lipase activities? No, I think I think we've covered I think, it. I don't think you we, think? I think we've you've done it well, Jill. So, uh, so thank you very much again for your time, and we'll wrap it up there. So, thank you for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button, um, and that way you don't even have to miss a podcast. If you could kindly leave us a five star review, that would be great on Apple Podcast or Acast, um, and tell your friends and uh, and get them to subscribe as well. So, we'll play some show notes in the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye